The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Welcome to Dropping In from Omega Institute, a podcast that explores the many ways to awaken the best in the human spirit. I'm Callie Alpert. Dropping into our Omega studio today, Scott Shute. Scott is at the intersection of the workplace and ancient wisdom traditions. He blends his experience as a Silicon Valley executive with his lifelong practice and passion as a wisdom seeker and teacher. In his most recent role at LinkedIn, Scott was the head of mindfulness and compassion programs. He is also the author of the highly acclaimed book, The Full Body Yes. The real measure of success, Scott says, is how happy we feel every day. Scott, welcome. Thank you for dropping in today on Omega's Rhinebeck, New York campus. I'm so happy to meet you. Thanks so much for having me. It's so great to be here so and great. actually be in person with you. I know. Isn't that such a joy? I it's just a realized, novelty, isn't it? I just realized I've done a ton of these. This might be the first one I've actually done where I was in the same room with someone. You know, we've been doing all these by Zoom I for know. so long. Oh, wow. So what a treat to be here. Well, I'm honored then to uh, rechristen your, like, the... The idea of just being in person with <laughs> yeah. people. What a concept, right? So the other thing that's quite a concept, a radical concept, is just the idea that success at work should be measured by a person's level of happiness. That's, in, for many, a very far out concept. You know, right. a lot of people are conditioned to gauge success by sweat equity sure. and titles and even the idea of struggling and overwork it at, overworking at the expense right. of feeling happy. Right. So has it taken people a while to make space for these ideas that you advocate for? And oh, th- um, if so, why? For sure. I think it's a journey. Um, and sometimes the journey is easier the older you get. And sometimes it's the young people who have already figured this out. But we're conditioned in a certain way to think about work in a certain way, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That Mondays are bad and Fridays are good. Oh, thank God for Friday. So we can go live our real lives on the weekend. <laughs> right, like, two days. Why? Are, it's bad percentage, isn't well, it? Well, bad ratio. Yeah. Well, I guess to start, maybe let's talk about the history of work for just a second because this, this gets us here. It's such mm-hmm. an interesting thing. So in the really old days, right, uh, in the agrarian age, like the building of the pyramids, we had kings and slaves. And then in the industrial age, when we all worked and made the same thing in the same factory, you know, workers are not treated very well. Right. And then now in the information age, you know, it's different. Workers can go where they want. They have more freedom. And so we have this place where we can be more of who we want. But these old ideals about work itself is rooted in this old tradition where work was not fun. Right. Work was something you had to do just to be alive. Right. Just to feed your family. Or sometimes you were forced into it. Mm-hmm. But now... You can kind of do what you want as long as you make enough money to survive. And it actually takes very little money to survive, survive. And everything after that is choice, right? So people say, oh, I don't really have a choice. Like, of course you do. Of course you can just walk out the door and leave your job. Of course you can leave that relationship. Of course you can do anything you Mm -hmm. want to do. Now, all of those come with consequences. (laughs) Easy for you to say, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. they all come with consequences. Mm -hmm. But we have the choice. And that's actually a very powerful thing. And so, so it starts with... Why do you work? And most people have never really thought about this, like really, really thought about why they work. They just, they just followed the herd. You know, they got the best degree they could get. They got the best job they could get. And the corner office and the flashy car and whatever was seemingly the prize. 
But most people don't stop and go, wait, why? Why, why am I doing this? Well, to, to use a business term, if you think about Six Sigma, if there's any big people out there, one of the really important things about Six Sigma is asking the five whys. In other words, you ask a question about why, and then you get the answer, and you ask why again. So why do you work? Well, I want to be successful. Oh, why do you want to be successful? Because <laughs> um, I want a fancy car. Why do you want a fancy car? Uh, so my neighbors will think I'm important. Well, why do you want your neighbors to think you're important? So I'll feel good about myself. Why do you want to feel good about yourself? Because I want to be happy. The answer to the five whys always mm-hmm. ends up, I just want to be happy. So instead of having five or six or ten layers in between happiness, like why don't we just do the things that will make us happy? So the basics of this is do what you love. Find the thing that you love or shape the thing that you're doing to be more the thing that you love. And we can change the goalposts, right? Instead of being about some weird external validation thing about success, like the car or the title or whatever, like, do I feel fulfilled? Do I feel happier? Do I make everybody else around me feel happier? Mm, that sounds pretty good. It does. It sounds really good. I think about even a job that I had many years ago in my television career. And on paper, it was a really good thing on every level. And I was miserable. Mm-hmm. And I continue to talk myself into thinking I was okay with it, even though the little voice inside was knocking really loudly until one day I woke up and I gave myself permission to be honest with my feelings with myself. I didn't even say it out loud to anyone. And that was a huge revelatory moment. And so my my question to you would be, why is it that we're, why do you suppose that people are so um, conditioned the other way? I think it probably starts in our evolutionary programming, Mm. right? We we got into tribes or into groups of people to have a better chance of staying alive, mm. right? And because and we end up being social people, and to have a certain status within that tribe allows us to have safety because they're not going to throw us out. They're not going to vote us off the island, you know, if we're popular or if we're useful to the tribe. And I think that conditioning just kind of evolved as things changed, right? And so. I think it's kind of natural to say, okay, well, the more money you have or the more status you have or the more people likely like you, the safer you are. Right. Right. So this is all the conditioning, right? All of this makes us safe. Safe, being alive, that's different than being happy. That's different than being fulfilled. Right. So going beyond that to say, all right, well, my basic needs are met. Right. I, I'm not going to starve to death. I'm not going to have a place over my head. Right. If if you do. Right. Not everybody does. But when we do. Then it's a choice. Right. When we really wake up to it, then it really is a choice. And of course, it's complicated. Of course, it's incredibly difficult. But this is the work. This is the work of changing, realizing, wow, I've been climbing this mountain my whole life only to discover I was on the wrong mountain. Mm. And it often happens from crisis, right? It often happens when people are pushed into a situation or some dismantling of their job or relationship, if we're going to stretch it to other aspects of life, right? It's often not by just a simple conscious choice. It's often because there's a bigger circumstance that sort of nudges us. That's true. Like everything else, we usually don't learn as much from the happy, great times as we do <laughs> from crisis yeah, or the fun? things that... It's fun Doesn't that, that suck? It's so fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In fact, when I was 
when I was about 17 or 18, I was uh, a spiritual seeker, and I was reading all these stories about the great ones, you know, the perfect ones, the enlightened ones. <laughs> and to a person, and it's almost always a guy, it's almost, like, you know, because tradition. And I was scared. I was having this conversation with the thing, right, with the divine. Like, I'm looking around going, wow, all these guys <laughs> suffered. Their lives are terrible. And so I was having this inquiry, like, can't I learn these lessons through joy <laughs> and humor and laughter? Like, does it, can I learn that way? And I got this really crisp answer. One word. It was listen. In other mm -hmm. words, life is always giving us these really magical truths. And if we just followed it, we wouldn't have the pain and the suffering. But, but we ignore it. We ignore the simple truth like, your mom tells you that broccoli is better for you than pizza. Well, no, I don't. I want to eat the pizza. <laughs> and then whatever, maybe you develop some health condition 40 years later. Mm -hmm. In other words, you know, you everybody knows their own mess. But, but we're never, the truth is we're never surprised by anything. The answers have always been there. It's just us waking up to that answer. That's great is the operative word, listen. I thought you were going to say no. <laughs> <laughs> no, listen. Listen, yeah. Answer's make, always there. Make the space to listen, right? So you introduced meditation and mindfulness to LinkedIn. I, I just, it's everything that you represent in your world, I just find so powerful and fascinating, trying to merge what has often been a, du a dualistic mm -hmm. thing between success, corporate, business, economy, and personal mindfulness and peace and mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. practice. And so when you first started to introduce these concepts there, it was a pretty, yeah. uh, it was a little bit of a slow going. <laughs> a well, few me, little people kind of trickled in and then suddenly it blossomed right. and became a thing, right? That's right. Well, let me give some context yeah. of how this started. Um, so my job at LinkedIn for the first six years I was there, I was the VP of Global Customer Operations, right? I had this big team, like a thousand people. And at the same time, my parallel track is I've been a seeker, you know, since uh, I discovered this path that I'm on when I was 13. I developed a, a practice when I was a teenager. I've been teaching since I was in college. It's a huge part of my life and also one that I've never, ever talked about at work, right, until I got to LinkedIn. But at LinkedIn, I found it was very open. Like our CEO was talking about compassion. He was talking about his own practice using Headspace. And I was thinking, wow, this is a place where I could bring my own thing, right? And so I started. I, I met with my friend who leads our wellness group. I was like, hey, do we do anything with meditation here? You know, we're, we're just chatting. He's like, yeah, we do a little bit of stuff. And then he sees this look on my face. He's like, wait a minute. Do you do, you do something? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I could do something. And he got really excited because here's this VP who is going to lead a wellness program. Oh, my God. So we both got really excited. And I went back to my desk and I did absolutely nothing about it <laughs> for three or four months because I was terrified. Mm -hmm. You see, when I, I grew up on a farm in Kansas and when I discovered this other thing and I was meditating or whatever we were doing, contemplating with my brother, my parents thought we had joined a cult and they wanted to get us deprogrammed, right? So we learned to cover it. We learned to not talk about it. And here I was 30-something years later, like, really? I'm going to be – I'm a leader here. So my inner talk track is like, oh, I'm a leader here. Like, what is this going to do for my brand? Are people going to think I'm weak? Mm -hmm. Are people going to think – you know, mind racing. Mm -hmm. And I finally got over all of that nonsense, ego nonsense. 
And I led my first session. And it was a Thursday afternoon on a 4.30 in the, get this, in the heavenly conference room. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought that was apropos. And the first time there was one dude there. (laughs) And here we are sitting in chairs, kind of knees to knees. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that dude is just as terrified as I was. I never saw him again. But the next week there were three and there were five and then turned into a regular thing. And then people knew I did it. So I'd get invited. I'm like the meditation exec now, right? So people <laughs> people knew that I did it. So I'd get invited to these big things. Like the CFO would hold a summit with three or 400 finance people. And I would kick it off with a meditation. And I'd walk away with my head shaking going, wow. Like, the, <laughs> wow, things have changed. And so I volunteered for three or four years. I raised my hand to be the executive sponsor of our mindfulness program. We didn't really have one. And then uh, with volunteers, we created this great program. And for me, the tipping point was three years ago, our CEO gave the commencement address at Wharton, right? Very buttoned down, very Mm -hmm. serious Wharton and talked about compassion. You know, if you're going to be successful in business, successful in life, be compassionate. And And he told his own story. And then he's on TV the next day. And this is all the reporters want to talk about is compassion and leadership. And I'm thinking, okay, it's time. Right. It's I'd been in my ops role for six years. I was ready for something new. But clearly it was time the world was ready. At least me, me was ready. So I made a pitch to our CEO, head of HR. And because I basically said, look, you just told our 16,000 employees that compassion was the most important thing that they could do. And I mean, we're not doing anything about it. So let's do something about it. And so with his great support, we created this role three years ago, head of mindfulness and compassion programs. What were you going going back to what you referenced earlier in your um, the earlier days of introducing these concepts? What yeah. were you afraid of? What was I afraid of? Wow. Just like we go back to the safety, you yeah. know, in society. I guess I was afraid of what people would think about me. I was afraid that I, that's probably it. it. That's probably it, you know, in different flavors, right? And at the root level, in that core level, when you're afraid of what somebody, the society or your group thinks about you, then you start thinking like, I'm going to get ostracized. I'm going to get isolated. I'm going to feel alone. That's going to be dangerous for me. And of course, none of that, none of those things are rationally true because the truth is, and probably let's be real. Like one of the reasons I was able to do this job is because I was a very senior person because probably because I'm a white dude, right? I'm a middle-aged white dude who's very senior and has done well. So if I had been, you know, take away any one of those things and it makes it harder for someone else mm-hmm. to do. So I'm very aware mm-hmm. that it was like, you know, a 1% of a 1% of a 1% allowed this thing to happen. When you mentioned the, um, the, the CEO that delivered to Wharton, it, that was one of the thoughts that came to mind yeah. is, again, it, it takes somebody of a certain demographic and stature to make it safe to introduce right. these five and six thousand year old practices. That's right. And with the fear and apprehension that you just um, talked uh-huh. about, why do you suppose it is that we've that that society's made it so um, uncomfortable or challenging to feel peaceful and mm. safe about all of this? Like why does mindfulness suggest a lack of safety? I know it doesn't sure. rationally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when it what is that um, that tension between these two worlds is sure. pretty thick. Oh, I think it's complicated. And and maybe let's dig into a couple areas. One is that some people confuse the practice with religion, right? Mm. And religion at work, even for me, is a hard red line, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like it's just not appropriate for yeah. any of us to be talking about religion at work. Just It's just better for everybody. And so 
so part of my thing was, okay, how do I bring this, the practices that we have with as much power in them as possible, mm -hmm. but still do it in a totally secular and open way? Mm -hmm. So that's one line of, of things that get weird or that give us a little squishiness feeling. There's another part, which we, you kind of touched on earlier, like we have this programming that if you want to be successful, man, if you want to be a VP, if you want to be a leader, you need to be a go-getter, you need to be, and we put a label on what you need to be. Right? When I was kind of a, a junior manager looking up, I mean, in my company at, in the old days at this company, I looked up and like, my, mess, my inner talk track is, wow, do you have to be a, I won't say yeah. it. Do you have to be a, a name, a jerk, mm -hmm. yep. to be a leader here at this mm -hmm. place? Because it seemed like everybody was. But I've since discovered there are companies, there are places, there are leaders who are fantastic people. And they bring their hearts and they bring all of themselves. And what happens is in the right environment, that makes them even more powerful. It makes them a much better leader. But I think we're we've been programmed that you have to be this way, this way over here, you know? So that's another part of what's happening. And then there's this other part of like, wow, can you really be chilled out? Can you really be this Zen, you know, <laughs> spiritual person and be successful at the same time? This has been my question to myself my entire life because mm -hmm. I, have, I have been this dual person, right? A seeker since 13 and a leader the whole time. And the answer is, of course you can, but you have to be, you have to let go of some of these ideals, ideas, not ideals. You have to hold on to your ideals and let these ideas go. Um, and it's easier than I thought it would be. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. That was a, that's a perfect segue to my next question, which is to dig a little bit deeper into the idea of leadership. Yeah. Because like you just mentioned, there, there, it's the should list yes. of what a leader should be. Yeah. I've been told this early in my career, not you know, not lately. Thankfully, certainly not at Omega. Yeah. Completely the opposite here. Mm. Um, but early on, when I was still finding my way and getting mm. you know promoted up the ranks in television jobs, I was. I remember being told, "Don't hang out with your peer or your previous peers." Mm. Don't share anything personal. Keep mm. these hard boundaries. Don't show vulnerability. Like I remember being told wow. that. Don't care too much. Wow. Don't be too passionate. Yeah. I got a lot of that. And it was always very counter to mm -hmm. who I am as a human. So mm -hmm. I resonate very deeply with this duality. And my question to you would be, how do you propose that leaders now here in the 21st century, when hopefully the zeitgeist is creating mm. more space for all of these um, ideas to right. come to fruition. How do you suggest that leaders hold space where there is mm. a sense of authority and leadership and still vulnerability and compassion? Yeah, you, you, there's a lot in there. Let's, let's tease that apart. And the, the word that comes to me is balance. So I remember this moment in the same, my same career journey where all of a sudden your peer group, you're managing them, right? Yes. And so if you go back to balance, no, you can't gossip with them anymore. That has to stop. It has to. And you can't share the stuff that happens in that meeting that you were just in. Exactly. It can't. That has to stop. Because you have to balance the needs of your being a friend with your, the needs of your job. And so that's a very real thing. And that's hard. That's a hard transition to make. And it does create, I understand why the leaders told you those things. Like you 
don't show vulnerability or you can't care too much because they're trying to protect you from what comes next. Because there will come a day when you, you work for a company that's not doing well and you have to lay off 30% of the staff. And if you're not really strong, that becomes excruciating because you may have to lay off one of your friends. Mm-hmm. Or you make a poor decision and keep one of your friends who's not you know, the one that you should be keeping. Right? So it becomes this balance. You have to wear both sides of this, this thing. And so that was, is very present for me. And th- I think that, well, maybe that's continuing the thread as you, as you gain in seniority or you gain in your own kind of spiritual development. It's continuing that balance and continuing to kind of ask yourself, what's the grace that holds both of these together? Right. right? Because I'm all of it. I'm not just a business guy. I'm not just a personal person. I, it's all me. Right? And when I tried to hide them or put them in little compartments, like we just, we just tear ourselves apart. You know, if we think of it as like, oh, I'm going to put on this mask Monday morning at 8 and I don't get to take it off till Friday at 6 or 5. And then I have this other mask, which is that's the real me. It's like, no, that's not true. It's like it's both things. And so learning to be all of it. Do you feel like then the idea of integration in our personal practices helps and gets reflected in a more gentle integration as leaders in our business lives? Oh, absolutely. Everything we do in our personal practice is then on display, right? So what I believe is that the context of work is just as valid of a spiritual playground, you know, a learning center as a monastery or escaping from life and going backpacking across Europe for two years or whatever. Work is just as powerful, if not more, to learn all of those spiritual lessons, even the lessons of the heart, especially the lessons of the heart. It can, it's all gonna happen at work, right? And so when we, when we realize that we're open to that and say, oh, well, if I sit on the cushion or I have this prayer practice or whatever I do, Of course, as we develop in consciousness, as we grow in our spirituality, all of that is then going to be on display as the person we show up. If we're on stage as a leader or if we're one of the workers on the front lines, it's all going to show up. (laughs) How we treat customers, how we sign off our emails or just how we be when we're actually physically together, it's all on display. Some would say in um, in some ways your work – people, you know, your, your work family is the, one of the greater mirrors because you don't pick them. I mean, on some level, maybe <laughs> sure. in a grander way we do, sure. but you don't pick them the way you might pick, you know, friends or right. chosen family or whatever. Uh-huh. So it's pretty magical how you, whoever's plopped yeah, in front right. of you, that's what you got. Exactly. And, and it's a good question. I like the, I like the inquiry when I'm really struggling with something and I find myself, you know, how you have arguments in your head with somebody who's not right there at the moment. <laughs> Maybe just yeah. a little. Yeah, of course. It happens <laughs> to all of us. Then I kind of step back and I, I kind of ponder the bigger picture. It's like, okay, what if, let's say reincarnation is real for just a second. What if in between lives, I'm meeting with my teacher and you're laying out, you know, you're reviewing the past. Here's all the stuff you learned last time. Here's all the stuff you're going to learn in this next life. Oh, what do you want to learn? Oh, X, Y, and Z. Okay, well, who are you going to take with you to teach you that? And imagine it's like a game of pickup basketball at recess. Mm. And you're like, oh, I'll take her and him and her. And sometimes that's not fun, right? But if you're having this agonizing relationship with your boss or somebody you just can't stand that's just next to you, if I find it super helpful to say to myself, how would I react to this situation if I put it there, right? If I chose this, if I chose it, I don't know if this is how life works or not, but if I chose it, 
how would I respond to this thing right now? And for me, at least, that gives it some, it gives it a higher purpose, I guess. It gives it uh, some, me some space and some distance to, to step back. And so I had this happen. I had you know, a boss that I didn't like. And every time, it used to be that every time I would go have a one-on-one, I would hate it. I would get anxious. I would get all, you know, mm-hmm. But then I found every time I switched it, I tried to switch it anyway. We'll say try. It's an evolution. <laughs> but when I would get mad or when I would get anxious or when I would get whatever that wasn't great, I would stop and I would try to smile. And inwardly, I would say, thank you. Because clearly you are bumping up against one of my values or one of my growth edges that I'm not quite there yet on. So thank you for teaching me whatever this thing. I, I don't even know what it is yet, but thank you. I'll figure this out as we go. It's so valuable, the reframe, especially if one is able to reframe before or during these <laughs> yeah. magical learning moments. Yes. The retrospect rear of your mirror tends to be a lot easier. It's a little harder. But if, uh, yeah, I'm hearing you say that if you look at it as an opportunity, it can create space in yeah. that moment when, That's right. instead of tension. That's right. And you don't have, it's not like you have to agree with the other person or like the other person, but it's just like, okay, what if this is a gift? What is if a gift? Is that one of the pieces that um, makes up sort of the mosaic of what you would consider the 21st century leader to be if you had your way? Mm, Of course. So of the things we talked about, right? I mean, all of it is about Awareness. You right. could call it consciousness, whatever you want to call it. But as, as we all individually develop, wow, wouldn't it be great to have a senior leader who is developed, who is conscious, who's also a spiritual being? You, look, you don't have to talk about spirituality at work. But what if they had their own great practice and they were evolved? Imagine the changes it makes in the organization. How does compassion, how does vulnerability, and how does still some version of authority show up for you every day with your colleagues and your sure. employees? Let me define compassion and that, that we, way we can talk about it in a business context. So I define, there's lots of good division. This is the one I use, you know, so I can teach to it. So compassion is the capacity for three things. One is awareness of others. The second one is a mindset of wishing the best for them or a mindset of kindness. And the third is the courage to take action. Right, so let's put this in two contexts. One is in terms of employees as a senior leader. So as a senior leader, if I'm really deeply aware of employees and what they're going through, I have a mindset of wishing the best for them and then the courage to take action on their behalf. Imagine the different policies and practices that I might put into place or we as a company might put into place if it comes from that place. I want what's best for them, and I know what they are trying to do in their lives, and I'm willing to take action on their behalf, which means that sometimes we're going to take an action that's not great for the the company right now in the short term, right? Like instead of, I don't know, maybe during COVID times, wow, I really need to lay off 60% of the staff because we lost 60% of our revenue. But if I try to act incompassionately, maybe there's a situation like, how about what if everybody got a 20% pay cut, but we keep everyone, right? And we try to weather it out because we know that probably our business is going to come back. I'm making stuff up here, right? But yeah. you see like an example. Yeah, or you're making your people or our currency versus just what the numbers right. are on paper. Right, right, Any of those choices. But it starts, and I'm not saying any of the choices are right or wrong, but it starts from this place of compassion. And this is how we all develop individually. We're, we all start off just thinking about ourselves. Me, 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 me. My own success, my own climbing the mountain. 
But somewhere along the line, every leader, real well, almost every leader <laughs> realizes. <laughs> I just thought of one. Almost, I was going to say thinking about anybody yeah. in particular. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, <laughs> we can all probably think of one. <laughs> almost every leader realizes that to really be successful, they have to solve for the whole. Mm. Right? It can't just be about them. It has to be for the whole. But if we all realize that earlier on, actually, what happens is there's research on this. The research shows that companies that take care of all of their stakeholders versus just their shareholders. So in other words, all the stakeholders are the shareholders, yes, but also employees and customers and the broader context of the environment we live in. These companies who balance those needs are 14 times, that's 1,400% more profitable than the S&P average. So if you want to be crass, it's like, this is the way you make money is to be compassionate. I'm not saying this is why we should do it. Yeah, I'm just no, saying it's, it's like, it's what just... a knock-on effect, right? Yeah. Like, like we talk about the programming of this is how you're supposed to be a leader. I'm saying we've got it wrong. Like not, not just because it's good for humanity, because if you want to build a successful business, this is how you should do it. That gives me goosebumps. And yeah. it's quantifiable. There's nothing, right. there's nothing airy-fairy about that. That right. is the bottom line of what every organization aims to do is make money and some care to do good in, at the same time. Yeah. And, and if you break it down, it makes sense. So if, if you think about a relationship, you're in a relationship with anybody. If you were just solving for yourself in everything you said or did, right, me, 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 probably the relationship's not going to be that successful. <laughs> But if you learn to balance the needs of the we, then probably the relationship's going to be more successful. And the same is true of, of a company's relationship with employees, a company's relationships with its customers. It just makes sense. I'm hearing a big macro toggle, again, between the power of, employee, of people in general and leaders yeah. having their own practice where you start tapping into something that's bigger and how when you migrate that over to a corporation as a collective structure, collective culture, how, power, how, how powerful that can be as Absolutely. a philosophy. Absolutely. It's really amazing. And it's incredibly powerful when it starts at the top. Now, what I tell people is you can go for it at the grassroots. Like if you want to do it, do it. There is nothing stopping you probably except that voice in your head like mine. But when it happens at the senior level, it gives such an umbrella of safety. So let's take that back then to you on your personal trajectory. Where yeah. You were you raised on a farm in Kansas. You knew what the idea of spaciousness and stillness were mm. in a palpable way at a very mm. young age. You and your brother found your way to your meditation mindfulness practices as yeah. young teens or preteens yeah. yeah. and maybe didn't have the full validation of your family quite quite yet. Right, right. right. So how did you find your way to um, feel safe and, and validate this desire to seek when you didn't have the larger picture supporting it quite then? Hmm. <laughs> 35 years of life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there's what I would say is that I had a, I don't know what other, this word sounds more than it is, but maybe it is. I had a calling, hmm. right? That. It, it is. When I was 17, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, like every 17-year-old. And it felt like I was on this path that was like left or right, like a T-junction. And one path was like I was going to go get an engineering degree and join the business world. But I don't know if you remember the movie Wall Street from of like course. the late, you know, and Gordon sure. Gecko and oh, Greed sure. is Good. That was my 17-year-old brain's 
uh, impression of what corporate America was like, right? So it felt like I'm going to get this degree and like sell my cell to the, do the devil, right? Or the other path was, the other duality was I was the lead in my high school musical and I had this spiritual bent, right? And I had this bohemian bent, right? Really bohemian bent. I was going to move to New York and be, join Broadway and be a singer. And it really felt like this black or white path. And in contemplation one day, I, I kind of threw up my hands, you know, virtually. I was having the conversation with the thing like, dude, I do not know what I'm supposed to do here. Like what? And I got this, the full body, yes. I got this knowingness, like this deep, deep knowingness. And it came with uh, kind of an intuition. And that intuition was, maybe you can change work from the inside out. I'm like, mm. I'm 17. Like, what am wow. I supposed to do with that, right? And so I kind of tuck that away. I get my engineering degree. And I'm like a good person at work. You know, I'm, but I wake up 35 years later or whatever it was, maybe more. I don't know. Maybe less. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm finally in this position where it's like, oh, oh. And finally, it, my whole life, my whole career did not make full sense until three years ago, you know, until I'm like at the time in my late 40s. So, yeah, it took 30, 30 to one or two years for me to make all these decisions. Why do this? And I'd be in. I was in engineering school in college, hating most of it. But still the intuition, like, no, 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 no. Stay, stay. You're good. And then I'm in these jobs. I worked for a semiconductor company, you know, doing these jobs that were not glorious. And I was thinking about leaving. Like, no, 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 no. Stay, stay. You're good. I'm like, really? Really? Like, this is changing the world? Stay, stay. <laughs> I, like, I'm a dog, right? Like, <laughs> you're good. Just stay there. Heal, heal, right. heal. And so what I'm saying is I followed my, I followed my inner guidance, even when on the outside it did not make sense to me. But every job change, every path got me just a little bit closer, just a little bit closer to the center point of what was true. So let's talk about your book, The Full Body Yes. Yes. Can you talk about what inspired the title? It's about when you get all your stuff out of the way, right? You're physical, mental, emotionally, and you're operating from soul. Right? And those other three things become like servants of soul. Like they're there to, so that soul can get around and can live your best life through your mind and your emotions and your physical body. But when you're operating as soul, like all of them like link together, like, like four clocks all hitting noon at the same time and the alarms go off, right? So you, you've talked a lot in the book about being aligned with one's own value systems. Mm -hmm. How does one begin to get in touch with their, their values in a deeper way? I think there's several, there's several exercises I use to help get there. And none of these are perfect. Like it's, this is something that unfolds a lot. But I can use these as markers along the way. It's like, oh, here's how we discover. One of them is if you, if you pick people that you really, really admire, right? And you think about why you admire them. Okay, those are a set of doubt values, right? I really admire my friend Tom because he's a great dad, right? He's super patient with his girls. Okay, so that's a value. Or pick three people you really dislike. <laughs> and you think about why is it that I dislike them? It's like, oh, well, that's probably one of my values too. Right? That's one. Um, if you think about peaks and valleys, the experiences you've had in your life, like pick the, 
the top three or five experiences you've ever had in your whole life, or maybe your career or relationships or what you might pick, you know, different parts of it. And then ask yourself, okay, what was it about that experience that was really like, why did that really speak to me? That's one of your values or your three valleys in your life. Why was this such a bad experience? That's one of your values. Or the last time you really got angry. <laughs> you know, I in the last few weeks, I've had these situations where, I don't know, life is conspiring. Here, that, that's word again. All at once, like <laughs> these things will happen. And I step back and like, why? Why is this making me so mad? And I'll realize this because one of my values has been violated. Right? So these are kind of ways that we can triangulate to get to it. And I always think like, like sometimes you could take a list of a thousand values and kind of whittle them down to your top three or four. You could do that. I think it's much more interesting to have it be mm, applicable to the decision you're trying to make. You know, so if you're, if you're thinking about a new job, all right, well, take all the things you've ever, in, in the things that we just talked about, that are relevant to work, right? Or a relationship. Mm -hmm. Take all the things we just talked about that are relevant to those relationships. Those are your core values for work or relationships or who you are as a person. So how, does, how do you show up in a full body yes every day? Does your family see it? Do your colleagues or employees see it? What does it look like? I think, I think people see it, not just me, but everybody, when we're at our best and we're not at our best, mm. right? In these past few weeks, you know, I, I've had some, uh, to be real, I've had anger issues. Like my wife um, got this thermostat for free because some part of some energy saving program in California, right? And so it's my job to install the thermostat. And I'm pretty good at those things until I'm not, you know? <laughs> and so I got it working, but I got it working on a day when it was 100 degrees outside. And so when I, when I put the thermostat on, okay, the air conditioner kicked on. Great, it's working but also the heater kicked on as well. And so I'm standing inside my house and our air conditioner has a hard time keeping up with the heat anyway. And all of a sudden the heater is on, it's blowing this incredibly hot air. And all of a sudden it's 92 degrees inside. And I, and also me, you know, it's kind of a waking dream. I am raging at 92 degrees. And of course my wife and my daughter are like, they found themselves scarce, right? They were like <laughs> disappearing from the room that dad was in. And so of course, you know, I show up in a way that was not the full body yes. But when I show up at my best, I'm great. Like, look, like everybody is, right? It's not just me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm happy. I've got my full, my full resources at play, everything I've ever learned. Um, I'm gracious with people. I'm charming. Uh, hopefully I'm inspiring. Just like everyone else is when they are at their best. It's the best version of ourselves when we're there. What does the near future look like for you in terms of taking these philosophies and this beautiful integration between professional business life and mindfulness, ancient traditions sure. life into the world? Sure. What's your, what's your hope and what does it look like? Ah, so it's two pieces. Mm -hmm. One is oh, I'm, leading, I'm leading meditations on Insight Timer and on LinkedIn, right? Even on, you know. You know, uh, formal LinkedIn, you can find me leading meditation sessions, you know, several times a week. But I think I'll also expand into places like TikTok. <laughs> and then what does the, meditation look like on TikTok? By the we're going to we're going to find out. Right. <laughs> uh, if anybody has great ideas, let me know. 
<laughs> and then on the compassion side, this is again how you operationalize compassion. I want to work with、uh, a handful of senior leaders to do coaching, but also consulting to help their business or their organization become more compassionate. And then ultimately, I hope to literally like write the book on building a compassionate organization. So that's the short term. We'll see what happens. More goodness to come. Have you ever sat and sort of dreamed up what the world would look like if more people were merging these two、mm. sides? If we, as a society, as a world, get this right, on the mindfulness side, people develop. They develop in consciousness, which means that they are. What's the right word? They're more of their full body. Yes, they're more their best selves. They're happier. They're more content. They're living saner lives. They're just better versions of themselves. And if companies get this right, it means that their work is providing inspiration to the world. It means that they have they're treating their employees with respect, which means that there's more wholeness that happens with employees. That that work can be part of the healing instead of part of the trauma that happens with the 3.5 billion people in the workforce. It means that there's more trust with customers and employees, which means there's less fraud. Which means that there's less, you know, pick all the bad things that happen in the world. And in fact, while we're there at the world level, look at all the headlines that exist today as you open your news browser or whatever. All of the bad things, probably, a lot of them are made better when we are all compassionate. So finally, I have three questions I like to ask every guest. First one: I'd like to grant you one wish for our listeners. What would it be? Hmm. The word that popped was love, right? So just to be, just to 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 feel that, to feel love, to be loved, and to love unconditionally. What is something you wish for yourself? <laughs> Same. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing, yeah.、Uh, and you know, if I get, I I wish Oprah would call. You know, the book's been out for a few months. Still, she hasn't called. I don't know why. But if you know Oprah, like you know, give her a copy of the Full Body Yes. <laughs> Do you want to share your phone number on this podcast? <laughs> I share where you can find me. <laughs> she can find you. We、she、will make sure we can help her、she、find you. And finally, what is the most important offering you'd like? Listeners, to take away from our conversation today. Ooh, maybe it's in this last two questions. Look, all of this. I think our whole purpose here in this planet is to learn how to give and receive love. That's it. That's it. No matter what we choose to do with our lives, whether we're a full-time mom or a full-time executive or whatever our role is in this world. No matter what the context, if we're in a monastery or wherever we are, it's all about learning to give and receive love. That's it. Scott, thank you so much for visiting with me today and sharing this conversation. If our listeners would like to learn more about you, where can they find you? Sure, you can find me at scottshoot.com or thefullbodyyes.com. They go to the same place. You can follow me on LinkedIn. You can see me on Insight Timer. Lots of places. Uh, and also, don't be a stranger, right? On my website, you can find places to reach out to me. I, I love to hear from people, so I'd love to hear, you know, if there's something that resonated with you or a story from the book that resonated with you. Like, please reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much.、My、Such pleasure. a pleasure. Glad to be here. 
Thanks for dropping in with Omega Institute. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new ears find us. Dropping in is made possible in part by the support of Omega members. To learn more, visit eomega.org slash membership. And check out our many online learning opportunities featuring your favorite teachers and thought leaders at eomega.org slash online learning. I'm Callie Alpert, producer and host of Dropping In. The music and mix are by Scott Mueller. Thanks for dropping in. I'm Laura Worcester, host of the Intuitive Life Podcast. As an intuitive medium and teacher working with the world of spirit, I love to share the peace that comes with the awareness that our departed loved ones are still with us. And I also love to help people explore what it means to live an intuitively led life. Start listening now on mindbodyspirit.fm or wherever you get your podcasts.